LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Brian Francis Culkin who joins us to discuss his book The Meaning of Trump. The election of Donald Trump was a shattering moment for the political sensibilities of America, immediately sending the country into a frenzy of rage, disbelief and invective amid a never-ending media circus that has bordered on the absurd and arguably crossed the line. But the question still remains, what does it all mean? The Meaning of Trump is an ideological critique that sees the election of Donald Trump as a completely natural progression to the general trajectory of digitized technologies, neoliberalism and a new breed of financialized capitalism. Destructive global forces that know no party affiliation or national boundary. Although Donald Trump is undoubtedly the symptom that has exploded to the surface after nearly four decades of failed policies and broken promises by both Republicans and Democrats alike, his election can also be seen as an existential fork in the road for both the United States and even humanity itself. What path is taken still remains to be seen. Hello and welcome, Brian, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you for having me. Okay, today, Brian, we're going to be discussing um, a recent book of yours, The Meaning of Trump, is simply the title. Listeners are already going to be aware of the main subject of this discussion, where we're going with it. Uh, before we jump into it, however, tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Yeah, um, so my name is Brian Francis Culkin. I am a, a writer, a film director, and um, a theorist. I always kind of cringe when I say that because it sounds so pretentious, but... Um, <laughs> But a theorist is basically, um, you know, it's a way of trying to explain the world that we live in. And it's a type of philosophy that draws on multi-disciplines from anthropology, linguistics, understanding technology, history, uh, and more to try to make sense of the world or theorize uh, the world that we find ourselves in. And I think that is actually a, a very important task right now and in, in the very confusing era that we're living in of uh, planetary globalization. The world is under theorized. And I think, um, so that's part of my book. I've, I've written now 10 books and, um, I've directed three films and I'm working on, a my first novel and a couple other theoretical texts for next year. And that's, that's basically it. Okay. Now, besides all of the hand wringing and arm waving and invective and and also some uh, cheering that came in the wake of the election of Donald Trump as U.S. president. There was a lot of disbelief and confusion. Uh, you know, how did this happen? What does this mean? How could this happen? What do we do next for both oh, sure. for both both Trump opponents 
and his supporters. Many of his supporters, of course, equally surprised as his opponents. And your book attempts to take a little bit of a sideways look at it, hence the title, The Meaning of Trump. You know, what does this mean? But also bring in, as you, you know, under your rubric of a theorist, bring in some other threads to try and explain what's going on. First things first, however, I remember a lot of people have written about similarities between the Brexit phenomenon where the United Kingdom voted to depart the European Union and that the election of Trump, they've drawn parallels between the sure. two. And I remember sitting up uh, on, the, on the Brexit vote evening, I stayed up as long as I could before I just had to go to sleep. And it was just at the point I went to bed when it was looking like, you know what? This may not go the way all the mainstream pundits are saying. So as far as the election of Trump goes, I mean, what did you, what were your feelings in the run up to the election, how the campaigns were conducted and, you know, where were you on the night? And at what point did you think, whoa, this guy could actually be our next president? Sure. Uh, to, first, but to your point, I, I think you're correct in the sense that there is a um, similarity between the energy behind electing Donald Trump and voting for Brexit. I think in a way you could make um, a comparison between Hillary Clinton being representative of the bureaucracy of the European Union. And in, in the case of voting for the Trump and, and in case of voting for um, of, of voting for Brexit, there was there was a, a social desire that um, for a lot of people who really maybe have felt underrepresented um, over the past couple of decades to try to somehow mobilize a political will to escape from that. Um, I'm not saying it's right or wrong or whatever, but I, I think that, that that is absolutely a fair comparison of, of, of us seeing Trump and Brexit as being part of the same political phenomena that we're now seeing in the second decade of the 21st century, now moving into the third decade. But in terms of where I, yeah, I mean, it was shocking. It was, it was absolutely shocking. I, I still remember exactly where I was um, the night he was elected. It's one of those things... Not quite like 9-11, but it's something that you'll always, I'll, I'll always remember where I was when Donald Trump was elected because it was truly shocking. I think my experience, at least, of, of seeing Trump announcing his candidacy to the election, to actually being elected in November 2016, was this kind of amazement that this guy, ca- I mean, just the fact that he announced his presidency was somewhat of a, it was, it was a joke. I mean, a lot of the late night com- uh, comedians and a lot of people who comment on pop American culture were kind of making jokes at this. This is a, a pu- this is a publicity stunt. This is a, you know, a, a, a scam for his apprentice show or something like that. And then when he started to win and started to mobilize a really, really devoted base of, um, of constituents, then people were like, what, what's going? I mean, it was very hard to make sense of what was happening. I don't think anyone ever thought he was actually going to beat Hillary Clinton, um, especially when the video was released in, I believe it was September, October of 2016, when he was openly admitting sexual assault and, and basically laughing about it. Um, then about two to three weeks later, when then, then FBI Director James Comey reopened the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails, that gave him a little bit of support and energy to try to somehow win and the night he actually did i mean yeah it it was one of the most shocking moments maybe in the history of american presidential politics actually well there's two main things there really one is that i mean hillary clinton's 
campaign was dismal, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, not only did she continue to, as a lot of the Democratic establishment did, continue to take their base for granted, continue to demonise the Republican base, they, they continue to ignore this huge mass of the population in red and blue states, actually, who'd been disregarded. There was a lot of uh, traditional Republican voters and traditional Democrat voters who felt largely the same way, actually, that there Absolutely. was a sort of, you know, metropolitan elites and coastal dwelling elites <laughs> uh, yeah. had been uh, taking them for granted and ignoring them for decades. And it was kind of like not seeing that coming, or even as it was appearing over the horizon, in this case in the guise of Trump, not taking it seriously, right down to the moment when they got a bloody nose. Yes, that is that is absolutely true. It is true. It is true on on two different levels, both practically and ideologically. On the practical level, Clinton essentially ignored these key states like Wisconsin and Michigan and um, and Pennsylvania that she just assumed would be voting for the Democratic Party because historically they had. Um, and ideologically, you know, the Democratic Party, back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, has always been associated with labor. And you could say blue call, the blue collar workers of America. That has without question shifted in recent years. And with Trump, you really see a crescendo of that where working class, mainly white voters, which had been, you know, so many of these people that voted for Trump in 2016, their grandparents were all part of FDR's New Deal. You know, they, they were lifelong kind of blue collar Democrats. And there's been a, um, the, the Democratic Party since the 90s had there's been a slow rupture with that working class base and it's moved into as you said coastal elites and rather with dealing with discrepancies in class it has moved into the field of what we term as identity politics dealing with the uh, the figures in gender and sexuality and, and and race not necessarily a bad thing it's it's just but they they have fundamentally dislocated themselves from the traditional questions of economic production and that has affected these blue collar voters in places like Michigan and Indiana and Pennsylvania and um Wisconsin the, the these were the key states that turned to Donald Trump in the 2016 election and you know and and to your point Hillary Clinton just forget about the idea the the movement of of the Democratic Party's ide political ideology practically speaking she didn't campaign in these places and Trump did so he put energy and money and um an intention into these places and it paid off. It, it paid off in the electoral college of November of 2016. In many ways, Trump, I mean, it was obviously, there was lots of people within the Republic, Republican party and the Republican establishment, even the Republican base who just couldn't identify with Trump at all. So in many ways, he's hitched his wagon to, to the Republican party because that was kind of the, the least worst fit, so to speak. And in some ways, it's almost like these other characters, historical characters, you know, Ralph Nader and Ron Paul, who, uh, even Bernie Sanders to an extent, who are kind of outside of that establishment system, but they have sometimes stood as independently, but other times I thought, well, I should pitch my lot in with, you know, red or blue, uh, because, sure. because one of those is going to come out on top, which, which obviously does happen. But yeah. with Trump, there was almost another level on top of that. Not only was he not a fit, really a fit, as a non-politician for any of the um, the main camps, uh, he himself is just so unpredictable. 
absolutely uh, so mercurial absolutely. so contradictory that people just couldn't handle him because not only could he just just change his mind his position on things on the you know t- turn of a dime and people say, like, whoa, we don't know how to deal. How do we react to this? How do we cope with this? But he could also do the aforementioned things, you know, about be involved in scandal or disgrace and seemingly be apparently untouched by that. Yeah. You know, I think the, the big differential between Trump and, you know, someone like Ron Paul or Sanders is that with Sanders and Ron Paul, and they're coming from it at things from totally different angles, is you have a real strong ideological commitment. With Paul, you have this real strong commitment to um, libertarianism and it's, and it's, um, and theorists like Murray Rothbard and, and, uh, Lou Rockwell, um, free market economics. And he just kind of was associated, even though he was by no means a Republican, he associated himself with that party. And the same as Sanders, who is not a Democrat in the way we think of, um, American Democrats, he is a socialist, but he associates himself. Well, actually, Sanders is an independent. He's not even, even though he's running for the Democratic nomination, he's always been an independent senator from Vermont. Whereas Trump kind of goes with the wind. Um, I think in some ways, I mean, Donald Trump is a definition of a coastal elite. So in some ways, he is very much associated with certain aspects of Democratic Party politics. And then in other ways, mainly for his free market, his kind of radical right-wing free market economics, he's, he's more associated with the Republican Party. Where he diverges with the Republican Party, most most obvious is, is in his personal life. I mean, the Republican Party um, wants to have this appearance of, of family values and um, some kind of connection to um, history, you could say. Whereas Trump is fundamentally an a his, he, he's a brand. He's not even really a human being anymore. He's like a he's a Twitter avatar. He's a corporate brand, and um, so that's that's the fissure with that part of the conservative, like the morally conservative aspect of the Republican Party. But yeah, no, he's a. I mean, Trump's a wild card. He's always been a wild card in his business life and his political life, and he's an he's a a, a classic opportunist, and he's a good one at that. I mean, he's the he's the leader of the free world right now. So um, yes. I would I, I would agree with your um, with your analysis of 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 his in one sense his similarity to people like Ron Paul and Sanders in the sense that he's an outsider, but then he differentiates in his lack of 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 ideological nuance and political commitment. Well, as you just alluded to, that one of the ironies of all this is that Trump is kind of a product of a of a process. He's part of a series of meta trends that he kind of is claiming to be against in a way. And it's, you know, again, it's kind of fits with his, with his whole oeuvre, really, this, this contradictory nature. But of course, a lot of his supporters don't see it like that. Uh, they'll hear Trump making pronouncements against this and against that, making America great again, you know, reestablishing various industries. But of course, he himself has emerged from the process that, that out, you know, offshored and destroyed sure. these industries and what have you. Sure. Yeah, I mean, he's the representation of privatization and, deregula- and deregulation, uh, certainly in the New York City real estate market, but he could also be representative of that on the national level as well. So he is, he is the symbol of the thing, the, 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 the paradox of Trump is that the people he mobilized into his political base, the unemployed coal miner in West Virginia, the auto worker in Detroit, I mean, he is symbolic of the very socioeconomic forces that have displace these people from their former position 
he, he is a symbol of the forces that have eroded the American middle class over the past 30 years. I mean, that's the real paradox of the situation is that he is about as far away from a uh, Detroit auto worker as you can possibly get. Now, I think it's clear that Trump was going to employ his armory of uh, skills and talents, whether you want to use those words or not. But the things that he's learned in life so far and that's taken him to whatever success he has had, he's going to deploy those in the electoral pro- process and then again in uh, in his role as president. And it's not unusual for people to enter politics from business or whatever. It's it's becoming more common. It it wasn't it's it's been it's becoming more and more common over the past 20 years but it's not as common historically in america it's it's becoming more of a thing now definitely for 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 a businessman to become a a um a presidential candidate yeah and i can and of course politics is expensive campaigning in the us is very expensive so if you've got your own war chest you know then that puts you um ahead puts you at an advantage straight away doesn't it but i can see him using and you see this in in his public pronouncements and when you see him meeting other world leaders when you see him debating using the same tactics to disarm disorientate his um opponents to almost mesmerize them in a way and so i've he- i've read commentary where people have even said you know daft little things he'll come out with these absurd statements and they stop people in their tracks and meanwhile they're losing their train of thought they're they're completely destabilized by the man even right down to his ridiculous hair it's somehow taking your attention away it's like a stage <laughs> a stage magician you know saying you know, sure. look over here, look over here. Sure, Meanwhile, sure, 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 sure. you know, he's doing the real magic elsewhere. Yeah, Trump Trump understands the new media horizon really, really well. He doesn't understand it intellectually. He doesn't understand it at all on a theoretical level. But from a gut level, from an, from a purely intuitive level, he, he really understands how Twitter works. He understands how reality television works. He understands what gets people's attention and, and and there is a Houdini-like quality to him. Um, you know, these other candidates are hiring all these polling people and and all all these they're employing all these new sophisticated uh, models of of gathering data and metrics. And and Trump's really just thinking he's thinking from his from his gut. Um, he has this kind of core understanding of of what people want and and. Um, I'm not saying he's right. I'm not saying it's good or bad or anything else, but he has a, a real understanding of how the new media horizon functions and how he can brand himself within that horizon. He, he understands how he can get his image and name and his message, his, his tweet out there quickly that people will stop and listen to. Yeah, and some of it's almost Orwellian, isn't it? In a way, the, the, the self-contradiction, it's like black is white and up is down. And, you know, uh, Eurasia has always been at war with East Asia one day. And then next day, you know, Eurasia has never been at war with East Asia. Yeah, but Mr. Yeah. President, you said, never mind what I said, we've never been at war with East Asia. Sure. Yeah, it, it remembers 1984 in terms of the content, but not really the form. Hmm. What What I mean by that is that the world we live in right now is nothing like 1984 because we're allowed to say whatever we want and do what we want. And whereas 1984 was like a totalitarian repressive state um, where we live in kind of a neoliberal permissive state. But at the same time, the um, breakdown of the breakdown between signifier and signified, the breakdown of language is opening up a space where this idea that we're living in a post-truth era 
is speaking to this really strange phenomenon that's happening right now where we're, we're not quite able to articulate what's actually happening in so in in concrete social reality there's a mixture between what we see in our computer screen and our iphone and what's actually happening in the world and that's allowing for trump to have these big brother orwellian statements where he can contradict himself say one thing contradict himself the next minute and people yes of course people are saying it's not true but it's still somehow working it's still somehow he's still some able to somehow speak to a political base that's listening. It recalls, uh, was it Bill Clinton who said in response to uh, being grilled about an incident or whatever, said, well, it depends on what your definition of is, is. <laughs> it, was, it was that kind of, you know, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. breakdown of language, you know. That, sure. No, I mean, that, that's really what it is. It's a breakdown of language, first and foremost. And I think, and we think in terms of language, you know, when we have ideas, we hear a voice in our head or we, we talk to ourselves, you know, that's where all the concepts that we deal with are mediated in terms of language quite often. Didn't used to be like that, of course, but when a language arrived, you know, that changed everything and that's how we mediate these things now. So if that starts to break down or morph and change, then well, it's, it's morphing into ones and zeros. It's, it's in the process of morphing into computational language. And we're in this kind of interim period where, where there's great confusion right now because we're in a, we're in the process, whereas the world as we know it is being slowly and slowly and slowly, not actually slowly, rapidly being mediated by computational language and, and microelectron, microelectronic technologies. And that is creating a kind of panic in the collective brain of, of, of society. And of course, people have become very frustrated, increasingly so throughout uh, politics in the late 20th century and now into the early 21st, with politicians who can't appear to say what they actually think about things, politicians hedging their bets or using weasel words and trying to keep the doors open and not burn any bridges so they can kind of have their cake and eat it. And even if you think it's total gibberish, it, Trump is, is for some people refreshing because he'll tell you what he thinks. This is wrong and this is how it should be. I hate that guy. This guy is a great guy, and it's just, it's that level of black and white, and it's kind of like meme magic. It's kind of like, could just boil it down for me, you know, I don't want to think about anything too complex. And D Trump does that. Yes, he does. And that, I think, has to do as well um, with the breakdown of basic decency and the breakdown of, of manners and the breakdown of, um, you know, the more and more that we interact through our technological devices without having contact with the people around us in our lives uh, basic manners formality becomes a thing of the past and we can quote unquote tell it like it is but telling it like it is is not always a good thing it it also is is obscene and rude and vulgar and i think you know one of the problems with trump is he is breaking down the symbolic dignity of the presidency um in terms of your point about politicians um, not really taking a stand anymore, that has a lot to do, at least in my opinion, of how the political process has been effectively subsumed by the by the global market, um, where uh, politicians don't really stand for ideas anymore in the grand sense of the word. They're more like business managers. They're 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 more like um, CEOs, you could say. So they're um, they don't have these. There aren't these really big dreams anymore that 
politicians of old had. Uh, politicians today are much more akin to businessmen than they are to um, politicians in the classical sense of the word. Yes, there, in many cases in, in Western capitalist sort of democracies, there kind of are representatives at the table with uh, corporate CEOs, you know. Sure. They mediate, sure. They mediate between uh, the corporations and yes. the voter of the man on the street because we, and, don't, we and, don't have an opportunity to do that ourselves. And that's exactly why they're not willing to say things that mean something. They want to find out. They, they want to say things that don't offend people. They want to say things that can somehow uh, leverage themselves in terms of their negotiating power with these corporate corporations or, or, or with the people in their own political party that they can get funds for to do something in their district. Perhaps given some of the uh, points that you've touched upon in the last few minutes, uh, this might be the time to introduce concept that comes in the early part of your book, people of the book versus the people of the screen. So just tell us where that comes from and what the relevance of, of that is to your um, your thesis. Yeah, so that was a concept that I got from uh, a book written by Kevin Kelly, who is actually the, the founder of Wired magazine. He's kind of a... Um, uh, one of these early 1990s technology prophets, you could say. Um, and it's from his 2016 book called The Inevitable, where it's basically a, a, a book about speaking about the, inevita- the inevitability of global technology taking over all facets of human existence. Um, and one of the things he speaks about in this book, he kind of divides humanity in half between what he terms the people of the book and the other half is what he terms the people of the screen. And the people of the book for Kelly are people who are still linked. You know, these are usually older people that are still linked in some ways to what we could term analog society or the operation of industrial capitalism. Um, they still read the newspaper. They still read books. They still watch the nightly news. Um, they're, they're still linked to this society that was before the internet came about. And the people of the screen tend to be younger people, although there might be some older people as well, but they, they have a fidelity to, um, digital society, uh, the values of global capitalism, um, and kind of the, 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 the fluidification of social roles, you could say. Um, so in many ways, what you saw in 2016 was a kind of referendum between the people of the book who were absolutely in the corner of Trump and the people of the screen who are tend to be forward thinking and, and have maybe um, at least think of themselves as being politically progressive who were in the camp of Clinton. I, the, the true paradox of that situation is that Trump, Donald Trump is the ultimate man of the screen. I mean, he is the ultimate Twitter avatar. He is a reality a reality television icon. He signifies all of these um, material processes and uh, represent and, and uh, things that are associated with the people of the screen. And he was, and, but he spoke directly to the anxieties of the people of the book. Um, he spoke to their problems. He spoke to their concerns. So that I think is the, is the real critical point. And we touched on this earlier is that Trump, is the representation of all these things that his own political base doesn't like. But through his, to use your term, his Houdini-like stagemanship, he was able to speak to their anxieties, speak in these very simplified political terms, and 
mobilize them into an incredibly loyal, I mean, unbelievably loyal political base. You'll, you will never find more loyal people than Trump supporters. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, and of course, it's worth mentioning, and a lot of people listening to this will be a bit like you and I, I, I think, identifying themselves to some extent with both of those camps. So, oh, you sure. know, book and screen, it's a bit like these delineations they have of like boomers and Gen X and Gen Z sure, and all sure. that. It's, it's not hard and fast. It's just an attempt to categorize and to understand something. Uh, we did speak about this in the past. I, I do find myself as someone, you know, obviously grew up with the book. But uh, took to the screen, early adopter, uh, not steeped in it, of course. So I, I find myself straddling two worlds in that sense. So I, I understand a little bit about those who identify themselves 100% in either of those camps. Yeah, I and I feel the same way. I'm kind of, um, I'm not quite, I'm not in Generation X. I'm younger than that, but I'm like right at the millennial border. So I'm, I'm not quite a millennial either. I feel kind of caught in between two worlds as well. Um but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think like anything, there are usually, in terms of using the um, the people of the book, people of the screen dichotomy, there are emancipatory aspects of each and there are repressive aspects of each. I mean, certainly people of the screen, um, there, are ap- there are without question, um, and we're seeing this emerge very clearly recently, there are, to- there are repressive, even totalitarian elements of screen society. And that's just from the surplus of technology, and surveillance and, and all these things that these very large technology corporations are are, are doing to um, communities across the world. I was just thinking about the there have been more than one TV drama show based around politics, specifically even in the White House, you know, following the, the, the titular president. And I could totally see a world, this would be a bit like Mike Judge's film Idiocracy, where if Trump had been able to, and this may yet happen, <laughs> that he would have a reality TV show broadcast from the White House, you know? Yeah. And it would, um, it would be called The White House, you know, with Donald Trump brought to you by Burger King or whatever. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised it hasn't happened, actually. <laughs> there was a point that you made fairly early on in your book about, I believe, um, many of the Trump supporters, people who eventually voted for him, is that they were struggling to articulate their problem and what it was that they really wanted and Brexit, as I mentioned close to the top of the hour, a lot of the people who voted for the UK to depart the European Union either were very much in the same boat, kind of would struggle to articulate what the issue was, or they would have a laundry list of complaints that they'd kind of taken straight from pro-Brexit politicians. And in the same light, I heard a lot of the run-up to the to Trump's election, I heard a lot of, and this has happened subsequently, of course, uh, since he's become president, a lot of his supporters articulating their own worldview through the words of Donald Trump uh, and his campaign managers saying, we don't know what going from, we don't know what needs to be done or we're not quite sure, you know, it's it's the immigrants or, you know, it's the Chinese or whatever. And then you'd hear them dutifully reading off these talking points from a manifesto saying, this is what the problem is and this is what needs to be done. So, again, similar parallels in those two processes, but it was just interesting, the initial thought of them kind of having this vaguely, the vague sense of unease, but not really knowing why. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a structure of the contemporary world world order right now, is there is a lack of what we could term a, a cognitive map, which is basically just a coherent sense of 
how the world works, um, what's happening on a day-to-day basis. I think that's very much lacking today, not just in terms of understanding politics and and macro issues, but even in day-to-day life, there's tremendous confusion right now. Trump, I don't necessarily think he provides by any stretch of the imagination a a coherent cognitive map for people, but he he does provide provide a very simplified map of the world. It's so-and-so's fault. It's, you know, and he he even does this with his nicknames that he gives people, Crooked Hillary and so on and so forth. Rocket man. So, tr- yeah, so Trump Trump does provide a sense of, um, even though he is incredibly, he calls himself a stable genius, even though he is doesn't seem to be very stable, um, he does, strangely enough, for his base, provide a sense of order, pr- provide a sense of meaning, you could say, um, for the contemporary situation right now in in the United States of America and even the world for some people. Well, a return to the past was a recurring theme with Trump and in politics currently, uh, this side of the pond. And there will be no return to the past in the way that a lot of the people who want to see it, but you know, that's not going to happen. And of course, the, the irony we spoke about earlier applies here as well, which is Trump talking about making America great again, you know, harking back to halcyon days when he himself has been a huge disruptor um, of all of that. Sure, you know? sure. I think to my what I was saying earlier is we are in a transitionary period right now in the early decades of the 21st century. We're caught between two worlds. We're caught between analog and digital society. We're caught between the discourses of industrial capitalism and the discourses of post-industrial neoliberal capitalism or globalized capitalism. So there is a very strong sense right now for nostalgia. There is a very strong sense of a, a need. There is this nostalgia for the old way of the world and the old way of life that's in the process of, of, of disappearing as being rendered um, obsolete by the interrelated forces of capitalism and technology. And again, the irony of the fact is that Trump, in this sense, is a very, he's not an, I mean, there's nothing nostalgic about Donald Trump. There's nothing about Donald Trump that reminds one of the 19, to use a stereotypical age of American history, the 1950s. He is a dynamic, pro- progressive force in the, in the sense of being um, linked to the operation, the, the progressive nature of capitalism and technology. But again, he was able, you know, making America great again and speaking in these terms that harken back to a past is is this real strong desire for nostalgia that I think comes in any time where you're in a transition or when you're in a confused transitionatory period moving from one era to another, which we clearly are right now um, in this in the early decades of the 21st century. Well, many listeners will remember Francis Fukuyama and his, even at the time, I thought, frankly, ridiculous book, The End of History. And of course, that that went in the dustbin subsequently. And I think a lot of, I'm talking now about the idea of where we might be with the capitalist system you've just spoken about. And Fukuyama was proved wrong on certain uh, social and political trends. And there's also the feeling that the capitalist system as it exists that Trump is so much of a poster boy for, that that can progress in only an onward and upward arc. And but there's a lot of intelligent people writing about a crisis of capitalism. And this is not really speaking to anything about whether it has a fundamental 
way of organizing society is good or bad. It's just saying, again, a lot of uh, the nations that we live in in the West and other lots of other parts of the world now as well, that system has been churning along and it's running into problems. And that's something else that's very relevant here, but not really acknowledged. And I think that Trump, in some ways, is kind of, uh, again, partly um, plays a role in that, but he's also, you know, cometh the hour, cometh the man, that he's the perfect type of president for this sort of in- interim period where we're kind of waiting to see what happens next, you know, because he's, sure. you know, this lack of, uh, you know, for all his plans and everything, it's like, what has he actually done? He's, he's kind of a placeholder in some ways, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's a big question. I mean, in terms of um, bringing up Fukuyama, his his um, phrase, the end of history, he developed in the mid-1990s, which was essentially um, trying to map out the the new coordinates of the world after the collapse of communism. And the end of history is basically just this idea that the world is now governed by two interrelated principles, the first being liberal democracy, the second being free market capitalism. Um, as that has progressed since the fall of communism, you've seen capitalism as we once knew it in the industrial period morph into what we could call the neoliberal model, um, the globalized model. And this model has two distinct features in, in the way that I see it. The first is the idea that capitalism has extended itself over its traditional domain. And a way to think about this quite easily is that capitalism used to be confined by both time and place. It was confined in time by the the work shift, the, the, the traditional nine to five work shift. And it was confined in place uh, by the perimeter of the factory or the perimeter of the office building. And, and it was confi- confined to just economic production. What has happened since then is that capitalism has the logic of capitalism now applies to everything. I mean, a perfect example is Facebook, how friendship was always separate from the, the logic of capitalism. It was, a, it was a totally separate domain that had nothing to do with productivity or, or profit or, or anything else or branding. Whereas today, friendship in, in terms of how it exists on Facebook is very much part of the capitalist machinery. Um, so that's the first thing is that, and then, you know, you have a smartphone, you can be working from your house, working from a coffee shop, working at midnight. Capitalism has, has extended itself beyond its traditional confines, beyond its traditional mode of economic productivity, and now kind of pro- proliferates almost like a gas throughout society. The, the British theorist Mark Fisher gave this wonderful term to it. He called it capitalist realism. And it's this idea that that the logic of capitalism now mediates everything, not just economics. It, it, it mediates cultural culture and our public spaces and our social interactivity. That's the first part of the neoliberal model. The, the second part, which is related to the first, is how technology is mediating all of this capitalist um, equivalence and exchange, this, this capitalist interactivity. So... Whereas before um, the 90s, capitalism was contained. It was contained inside the office building. It was contained in the mines. It was contained in the factory, so on and so forth. What's happened since then is that it has spread through society through 
the, through material technology, such as networks and satellites and smartphones and, and all these things that we use right now um, that, that are affecting our lives almost exclusively on an unconscious basis. Um, so that has created, or is in the process at least, of creating a crisis. And I think, you know, in one sense, I do think Donald Trump is very much in the spirit of that. But in another sense, he's against it because, you know, the one thing that neoliberal style capitalism doesn't want is a wall. That's the last thing it wants. It wants complete open borders. It wants to be able to move and flow and circulate throughout society. So the, the, the way that I described it in my book is that Trump wants neoliberalism minus the globalization. In other words, he wants a, a very intense form of, of, of capitalist productivity, but he wants it contained within a nationalist boundary. And of course, you can't do that anymore. And the reason why you can't do that anymore is because the very logic of capital has produced the networks and the satellites and all of the other microelectronic technologies, even now with quantum computing and, and, and the emergence of artificial intelligence and, and mass automation, these things don't recognize national borders. These things don't recognize boundaries, symbolic boundaries in the way that generate meaning for human beings. So he is a bit of a conundrum in the sense that he doesn't even under, really understand um, how things are working like he's just shooting from the from the um he's just shooting from the, from from the hip um so that that is definitely a paradox again we see all these paradoxes with trump and this is another one in one sense he embodies the most radical element of of dynamic neoliberal capitalism and in another sense he wants to put the brakes on it by building a concrete wall across the southern border of the united states of america well, I suppose there was a time in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union where the idea was, particularly in America, is that um, you know American values would then percolate around the world slowly but surely. That you know it wouldn't matter if there, there weren't borders because, in some sense, America would be everywhere, and you know there would be no enemies. Uh, but of course, it hasn't worked out like that. No, it hasn't at all worked out like that, and not even close. So that that was. Um you know, very um, positive thinking, you could say, or um, or wishful thinking. And it didn't work out like that at all. And I, I think maybe part of the problem was is that a lot of the people who were in power in the 1990s, maybe they didn't quite realize the length that a, a process like capitalism could go in, determinate, in determining the experience of day-to-day -day life for human beings. Um, that, you know, the way things are now, that was probably unthinkable to someone like, let's say, Alan Greenspan in the in the uh, 1990s. Actually, you know, one of my favorite filmmakers is the British documentarian Adam Curtis in terms of documentary film. And he's made a series of really wonderful films. And one of, one of my favorites is a film called All Watched Over by the Machines of Loving Grace. Like most of his films, it's, it's a several part series. And I think in part one of, of that particular film... It deals with um, this very thing we're talking about in terms of the mid-1990s, which kind of led to the situation that we're in right now when Bill Clinton came to power, uh, when Bill Clinton was in, elected and became president in 1993. When he became president, he had all these kind of high-minded, traditional democratic ideas about, about government programs for society and so on and so forth. And when he came in, 
Alan Greenspan and Robert Rubin. Rubin was the Treasury Secretary and Greenspan was the Chairman of the Federal Reserve. They basically told them, you can't do that anymore. The market is going to di- be dictating pretty much everything now. And all of these old-fashioned democratic government interventions and programs and so on and so forth weren't really going to work in this new model of, 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 I guess you could say, capitalism that was in the process of of becoming very, very powerful in the 1990s as it became linked with computational technology. Um, so what, what you see then is the, the, gest, the gestational period of Fisher's terminology, capitalist realism, where everything in society is reduced to its utility and its potential for economic pr- productivity and therefore profit. And, and now it's, of course, it's data and, and all of these um, different things in, in terms of information that, that can be generated just from, I mean, this Skype call right now that we're having right now, this is, this is data, this is information that a company like Skype and they're owned by Microsoft, they have access to that now. So uh, it's this idea that everything and anything can be quantified and monetized. And that itself is what I think people, I don't necessarily think they're they can theor- they can theorize it and, and articulate it the way I just did, but this is this is something that people are most certainly don't like, and um, we'll see how much long. I mean, someone like Bernie Sanders, his part of his campaign is is pushing back against this onslaught of technological and corporate power against human beings. So we'll see what happens. I mean, the next decade is a very critical decade in terms of uh, flushing out the relationship between the power of technology and what will become of the human race. Just to briefly touch upon the politics of gender and race and identity, that might sound like a completely separate discussion, but where do you see the intersection, if you pardon the pun, of all of that with what's happening, what we've been discussing? Because those are things you know that Trump and all politicians have to have opinions on now, and they're they are being stoked and aggravated in many ways by what's happening in politics and politics is also responding to it or attempting to. So it's like another set of variables and, and complicating factors in the mix that are often not helpful, but also they're serving as a tremendous distraction. And this doesn't, this is making no value judgment about any of the no, uh, no, con- of con- content of these topics. That's just, you know, it's my statement yeah. about it for, from my point of view. Yeah. I didn't get that at all. Um, I think that speaking about these things, this is a very complicated conversation and, and it's almost an entirely different interview. Um, and there's a lot to say in this. But I think what has happened, and again, I think someone like Bernie Sanders is kind of pushing back on that. But I think what has happened is that these questions of identity, right? And when they're, articulated in political terms, we speak of them as identity politics. They have been severed in many ways from class. It's like we're speaking about race and gender and sexuality as, as, as being not related to economics and, and class differential. And I think that is part what has gotten people so hot and heavy about all these different things. Neoliberalism has been, for all intents and purposes, quite sensitive to um, these issues. I mean, Madison Avenue, Wall Street, Fortune 500 companies. I mean, they've all been very, um, you could say, the woke. But what they're not woke about is basic economic difference, the, the basic class consciousness. 
So I think there's been a, um, again, the problematic is how identity has been severed from class. I think that's, that's the problematic. And I think someone like Bernie Sanders is trying to relink these two in a, in, in a very new way. So yeah, that's what I would say about that. Okay. One other question about factors rarely acknowledged in all of this. Uh, but this is a, a theme that I pick up in all sorts of diverse interviews, but it comes back again and again. From my perspective, and not only mine, there are kind of meta trends occurring across the entire world. And these affect the environment. They affect uh, economies in terms of you know the global economic structure and the flaws and weaknesses within it. Uh, they concern energy availability and production going forward and how sustainable the industrial societies that many of us uh, live in and benefit from and that the rest of the people around the world who do not currently benefit from most of whom would like to be part of to what extent that is coming unstuck and what in technology whatever the developments are that aside what things will look like in future and i constantly hear politic politicians struggling with issues that uh, a lot of light can be thrown onto these issues if you consider some of these meta trends but they're assiduously ignored or people are just ignorant about them so essentially i just wanted to get your take on that these i see these just big big trends that that are regardless of your political affiliation your opinions your desires any of that these things are occurring and they're often as not not being factored into uh oh yeah political equations sure sure i mean the rate of change that we have been experiencing over the past 20 years is unbelievable. I mean, it's, and if we know anything about technology, that change will get even quicker as in the next 20 years. And I think just a lot of people can't deal with it. I think a lot of people right now are just kind of in their own little world. They're trying to get by on a day-to-day level. And that goes for a lot of politicians too. I mean, it's, it's very hard to have this kind of grand view of the world right now. It's very, very difficult. And the reason why it's so difficult is because we're getting, uh, on a very practical level, we're getting bombarded constantly all day long with flows of information and memes and, and social media messages and, and, and news reports. And uh, the, the structure of the global media apparatus today is so overwhelming that it's very hard to think through all of that. So with the changes that are coming in the, in the immediate future, artificial intelligence, in the global ecological crisis, continuing automation, um, more and more questions about what we talked about before, identity and uh, identity politics. I think we need right now more than ever is a, is a broad vision of the world, a broad vision of the human race in the 21st century. But unfortunately, we really haven't been getting that from um, our, our, our politicians. And because Trump... He doesn't by any means offer a, a, a broad view of things, but he, he offers a condensed, simplified view in soundbite format that people can digest and understand. So I think from that capacity that he has in terms of his um, ability to communicate through these new technolo- technological mediums, that is what mobilized his political rise. Well, you said towards the top of the hour, uh, you mentioned 9-11, and you said, of course, you didn't feel that the election of Donald Trump was in any way comparable to that. The only way I would compare the two is simply in terms of temporal historical markers. Something profound does change 
in the wake of them, and there isn't really any going back in that sense. What I'm thinking here is whenever Donald Trump's presidency comes to an end, whether it's after this term or whether he's re-elected, I find it really difficult to have a vision of what the landscape looks like after that post-Trump. Yeah. Can, can we really go back to business as usual with, what, <laughs> you know, Republicans, Republicans and Democrats in the US or even here in the UK and in other liberal democracies with the political uh, shakeups that are happening? So it's just trying to imagine what that might look like. Can there really be a time when, when Donald Trump's presidency was just seen as a little temporary aberration, a small blip in history? Well, the, I do think that the, the Democratic Party, their strategy in 2020 is trying to do exactly what you just said, portraying the presidency of Donald Trump is just a blip on the radar. And we have to go back to, quote unquote, American values and, and all the things that made us strong. I mean, I think, you know, it's almost the same as the presidency of Donald Trump. First of all, I don't think you can associate or, or reduce the presidency of Trump to himself. There were a series of political and economic and technological factors that opened the space where someone like him could even become president. So this idea that um, is very popular amongst the Democrats of blaming all the problems on Trump is something that I just don't agree with at all. And it's something that I critiqued in my book very strongly. Um, so for me, no, there, there is no going back without question and you can almost you know it's almost like being traumatized you can't go back you can learn and integrate and heal but then ultimately you have to go forward and and i think you know one of the things that donald trump does and i think this is the reason why all these unexpected people like a a perfect example would be slavo zizek you know one of the great contemporary european philosophers he supported trump over clinton not literally but in, in the sense that Clinton was just keeping with the status quo and where Trump, he opened up a space for something new to occur, some, some kind of new political reality to emerge. What Trump does is he opens up the possibility where we can see all of these inconsistencies. We can see all these paradoxes, all these hypocrisies that are part of the system itself, not the Republican, not the Democrat, but are inscribed into the heart of the of the political reality in America. Unfortunately, it, it seems the opposite is happening, is that both sides are hunkering down into their bunker and just doing kind of uh, political warfare. And you saw that very clearly with uh, with yesterday's impeachment of Trump. I mean, the voting was almost exactly on party lines. And it's almost like... Two, I, I was watching some of the um, speeches on the House floor yesterday, and just the absolute differentiation and reality that each side had was staggering to see how different and radically different their point of view was regarding the charges and the impeachment procedure of of Trump. So I don't think there there is any going back. There can't be any going back. I mean, Trump opened up so many wounds. He effaced the symbolic dignity of, of the presidency in ways that it's just really not possible to um, to kind of pretend that he wasn't there. He is a memory that is absolutely inscribed into the consciousness and unconsciousness of American society. So you have to go forward. And what will happen is we don't know right now. Well, I mean, regarding the impeachment process, 
I think the Democrats are not careful they're going to be doing Trump's work for him. But yeah, I mean, it's what you're describing in terms of like opening up a space. It's kind of like a cleansing fire in a way. You know, you maybe like burn down, you know, scrubland or whatever, and then nature takes over and there's new growth and everything sure. uh, renews itself. And certainly Trump has spoken himself in, in similar terms and, you know, in terms of like draining the swamp and what have you. I mean, going forward, because as you say, that's all there is to do. What do you see as some of the key threats and promise, you know, whether, you know, just in your professional opinion or how you personally feel about it you know what what worries you maybe or what gives you hope well what gives me hope is is always the same thing and it's just the the basic decency of of human beings i mean i've i've been all around the world myself i've been to many 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 countries and i met many many people from all different walks of life and you know i i find that for the for the overwhelming majority human beings people they're nice they want good things to happen um, so that's always what I keep in mind as being positive. It's just the basic decency of the majority of human beings living on planet Earth. In terms of what worries me, I would say without question, the structure of global technology in the present moment. I think we don't really have a grasp on it, both um, in practical terms, but certainly in, in, in understanding what exactly is happening. And I think in particularly what has to be theorized or flushed out and made and, and explained to people in, in very matter of fact terms is the ongoing integration between um, global capitalism and global technology. I think that right there is, is the key point of contention over the next couple decades and how that develops is literally going to determine the future of, of, of the human race. I don't like to speak in such dramatic terminology, but I, I think that is probably an understatement is how technology and capitalism which are developing almost as a singularity right now, how that develops over the next couple of decades is going to determine so much. And at some point, there is going to have to be some kind of political intervention that steps in and regulates or modifies or controls or, or, or um, slows down this rapidly, rapid, ra rapidly developing process. So that's that's the real concern that I have. And then, there, you know, there's hope. I think there's always hope, man. You know, I'm one of these, I try to be a positive in, in life, in my personal life and in terms of how I see the world in the big picture. So, um, yeah. Yeah, well, there's nothing else for it, really, is my attitude. Today, Brian, we've been discussing, um, amongst other things, uh, your recent book, The Meaning of Trump. Uh, that's available everywhere, easy to get. Just before we sign off, share with listeners details of your website and anything else you'd like to put out there. Yeah, like I said, uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. I've, I've enjoyed this conversation. Um, my name is, like I said, it's Brian Francis Culkin. My website is uh, com. You can find all of my books, my, 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 my film work, and um, upcoming projects that I'm working on. Well, once again, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you very much for having me, Greg.